I was sitting in a government office where I was called to a government office and they were saying, listen, I mean, you are a good writer. You've done some beautiful things, but this time you screwed up. I mean, why aren't you writing a story about how beautiful and sensitive our youth and teens are? I mean, and trying to explain what art was to them was useless. So it was canceled. The head of drama over there at the network really wanted to continue for another season, but their, the CEO and their bosses said no. And that was the blessing because that, that what made me fight to find someone who would be open to give it new life, right? Welcome back, guys, to episode number 79 of Connection is Magic. This week, we have another incredible guest sitting down with us, Ron Lashem. He is an Israeli-American television producer and writer, best known for serving as the executive producer on HBO's hit show, Euphoria. He was also the co-creator of the show originally when it was released in Israel in 2012, which not many people know about, and the show was subsequently canceled after one season. Ron was also nominated for an Academy Award on one of his very first projects, a film called He was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film. He also co-created and wrote the television series No Man's Land for Hulu, Valley of Tears, and The Gordon Cell. In addition to his career as a television executive, he is also a best-selling author and has had his works translated into 20 different languages. This episode we get into how we can avoid getting in the wrong creative partnerships, which can really hinder us and set us back if we're not careful. We get into what it was like for Ron when he was first pitching Euphoria and how he got shot down by all the major networks and how he literally said he started to feel sorry for himself and had to pick himself back up. We touch on what makes Euphoria such a different show versus other shows surrounding teenage casts. And we also get into how Ron stays in his creative zone, how he will literally take a flight to some city he does not know, leave his phone in the hotel room, and then just go walking in that foreign city for hours to get creatively inspired. I thought that was super interesting. We get into all that and so much more. I can't wait to have you guys check this one out. Here we go. Welcome everybody to Connection is Magic. I'm your host, Samson Shulman, a former music executive turned podcaster and coach. In a world obsessed with the highlight reel and keeping our difficulties hidden behind the curtain, we end up feeling lonely and isolated and opportunities for human connection are missed. On this podcast, we dive deep with our guests and get them to share those dreaded, unfiltered pieces. We learn how to make lemonade out of life's lemons and realize adversity isn't sent to break us, but rather shape us into the greatest versions of ourselves. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Now let's begin our journey back home to Connection. All right, welcome everybody back to another episode of Connection is Magic. We are blessed to have Ron Lashem with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Ron. Wow, we're finally doing this, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 64 emails later. No, yeah, not that so many. Well. Maybe yeah. like eight emails later, but we're here. <laughs> so good so, to see you. Yeah, so good to see you. So good to be with you. I feel like you're like pretty much a, a spot on fit, I think, with with the message of the podcast and the, what we're trying to get out there into the world. Thanks. I just want to stress again, thank you so much for doing this. I'm very excited this. about this time. Thank you. Thank I love you. your podcast. Thank you. That means a lot, man. So you grew up in Israel and tell us a little bit about a, a little bit about that. Um, and what was that like? I know you got into the army, right? Very early, which if I'm not mistaken, is standard, right? And in, in Israel, isn't yeah. everybody like required to uh, yeah. join early? 
Yeah, mm-hmm. at the age of 18. But you know what? I was um, I was working in television since I was 15, I think. And then I joined the military as an intelligence officer, which I, I was working on a Palestinian peace uh, process and peace negotiations in the 90s. It was quite optimistic time, you know. Then I moved to journalism for a while. And then being an executive, I've, I've done lots of changes. Were you excited about going into the army at that point? Or were you like, ah, this is bullshit. I'm a young man. I'd rather be doing something else with my life. I was kind of a mama's boy. I I never went to any summer camps or something. Just slipping out of the house was frightening for me. Sending you to training, military training is not very... But I was an intelligence officer, meaning I I didn't even wear a uniform. I was working in a a kind of civilian environment, like an office. It was behind the scenes a little bit in the... the right. I've learned a lot. It gave me tons of tools. Yeah. Were you always precocious? You know, yeah, that's a problem. Maybe that's the problem. When I was 13, I, I had like, I was uh, living the life of a 30 year old. I had, I like made my schedule and meetings and I was very ambitious as a kid, but I was all, maybe I was also just uh, running away from something emotionally and hoping the more emotional side or romantic side, I, I knew I, I'm a gay kid. Yeah. And it was the easy thing was to just to focus on, on a career when you were 13, you know, but it was exciting. I've learned television all my high school years and and journalism and it was fun. Now, what got you on, on the writing path? Was there a piece of art or a film or something that, you know, made such an impact on you that you started thinking like, I got to go do this? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I can think of many films and books that made me think like, this is what I want to do. And, but I, 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 I had zero confidence I mean, imagine as a not only as a kid, even like in my early twenties, I thought, well, I, I'm not, I'm not an author. I will never be a novelist. I, I can't even dream about that. But when I came across my first story, the one that caught me, and I felt, I felt like I, I need to shout this. I need to tell this. I want people to listen to this. I was writing a novel, and I thought, okay, there's zero chance this is going to be published, and it was rejected by many publishing houses and i think in one of the publishing houses an author i really admire wrote a review um saying that after a few pages this it feels like a trick and it's worthless (laughs) oh no but when it was published eventually it was on the bestsellers list for two years and it was translated uh into 22 languages and and it it was adapted as a film that was nominated for the academy awards in the foreign categories you're telling me the first piece of work was nominated for an academy award am i getting that right yeah but it's a curse you know that you know that it seems like a blessing ron honestly Uh, like that seems like everybody would dream (laughs) dream of this no how's it a curse please so you know it's it's i know it sounds like a cliche but you don't want to be this quick stormy fire that would like you know what the thing is i was afraid to lose what i had it was two years of my life Mm -hmm. flying around the globe with this story meeting people in china or brazil that were reading this novel and talking to people people who who are who were willing to connect and talk about your characters that was so exciting and i knew i think i already knew back then that i there's two things there are two things that i really want to achieve and this is going to be um, my, my marathon for the rest of my life one is to be able to tell the stories that i want to tell uh not getting rejected so it's because no because i i, I don't mind being rejected i i get 
I get a no every every hour, <laughs> once an hour. I mean, it's like, but I, I but I want to I want the struggle to be a bit easier when I'm like telling an executive or a publisher, please allow me to tell this story. I want him to have some kind of confidence. And, and the second thing I wanted to achieve is to be able to choose to work only with people I really love. And today, like 15 years later, I still like, no matter what, I mean, after euphoria and everything, I still feel that um, I'm still struggling. I get a pop, a, a rejections once a day. And, and, and that's the, that's the story of this profession. You get, you get it, you, you get, you get used to it, but also you're not choosing who you want to work with sometimes, but you still, that's your goal, right? Okay. Let's drill down on that a little bit more, Ron. Okay. <laughs> I feel like we have a lot of creative people that tune into this podcast, right? And I feel like those no's can be very devastating. Any advice to those listening on how to gracefully deal with no? Uh, so, wow. Um, you know, for, when, when you get, when you get, um, notes and they're sometimes going to be, um, you, you're going to feel humiliating. And, you, you know, when I got the first, um, rejections and reviews that said, uh, awful things about this, this, this first novel, you're not ready to listen and you're, you're, um, you have tons of explanations in your head as to why are these people rejecting your work mm -hmm. rather than listening and asking yourself, well, something didn't work out for them. And maybe I should, maybe they're not expressing it right. Maybe the examples they're giving uh, are not the good solutions to the problem. And knowing that it's, it's not, this game is not, it's not an instant thing. Some of the most beautiful stories, both television and, and literature took 15 years to be mature enough, you know, to have the right momentum for it. Or it's so complicated because you need to be really open-minded to believe that when someone gives you notes, it means that, that he was making an effort. It's better to, than those executives who tell you, wow, that's, that's awesome. That's brilliant. I love this. And you'll never hear back from them. Right? <laughs> you'll never hear from them again. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is our yeah. daily life as well. Like that's, you know that. This is a perfect segue, Ron, because Euphoria, A, it was canceled after its first season in Israel, yeah. correct? Yeah. And it was taken here around the different networks in the States, and it was rejected by 20 plus, right, uh, networks here in the States, I believe, including yeah. a HBO, right? Can we please open this up and, and talk oh, about okay. what that process was well, like? When, when I was... Um, kind of fighting together with my uh, producer partner, Hadass. Um, we were fighting for six and a half years to try and convince someone in the U.S. that it's worth exploring. And everyone said no to it, including the, the best, like, 20 platforms. First of all, I felt sorry for myself. I've learned a lot through the process of trying to convince people to listen to uh, the pitch of Euphoria, the idea, the DNA, and to find the right creator who would be brilliant enough to build this as his own. Hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have not done so yet, please join our Connection is Magic text community. Go to the Instagram page, which is at Connection is Magic. At the top of the page, there's the word text. Click that and text the word real, R-E-A 
A-L to that number. You'll automatically be signed up and you will get advanced drops on new episodes before they come out. Discounts on super cool Connection is Magic merchandise and special retreats we're going to be doing. You will get advanced notice on those. We're going to have some amazing guest speakers. Come get tapped into a creative community where you can find support with like-minded people. It is so hard to be on the creative path alone. Don't do it. Go sign up now. Go to the Instagram page. Text the word real to the number at the top of the page and come get yourself that support that you need. Also, if you're an artist or creative stuck in your journey, please do reach out for coaching. Hit up the site connectionismagic.com and send an email through and book a free 15-minute discovery call to see if I may be of help. I am right now in the second year of a master's program in clinical psychology, a training therapist as well. I am very passionate about getting creatives unstuck. There's so much that we deal with, I feel like, so many thoughts and impediments and sabotage, and there's so much that we deal with in our journeys, which I have overcome myself. I was stuck for years between working in music and now doing this path. There was a lull of several years, which were super brutal. So I'm very passionate about plugging in with creatives and trying to help get them to the fullest expression of themselves. Now let's get back to the show. When you sometimes when you sit in front of executives and they would tell you, listen, let's make it a bit more comic. Let's uh, add more didactic kind of like mature parents <laughs> figures. In, and you are already exhausted after 20 networks told you go to hell. And then <laughs> but you still need to be very tough about saying, well, no, 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 I'm going to keep on believing that the DNA that I want to create is worth something. I'm not going to allow a, a, any producer or network to try and shape it into something that it is not. If the, I, I would have given them the rights, it would probably never be like, I mean, they would buy, they would buy an option, try to develop something that will look like something else. And it most likely will never be produced, it but even if it successful. will be produced, it will be forgotten. Yeah. But going back to the Israeli version, you know, it's like when we started creating it and writing it, it took like three years to write that original version. And a lot of networks, you know, back then, just an example, we had an idea for an app for hookups where not only gay people like Grindr would use, but also female characters might use. Mm. executive told us, many executives told us, well, this is not believable. And, and, and no girls will go into hookup, like hookup apps on their phone. Tinder. This is before Tinder. Tinder. Yeah, that was before <laughs> Tinder. Right? Okay. The Israeli audience is, on the one hand, is very neurotic. So they get bored very easily. So you do need to be edgy. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you must be mainstream. They just want everything to be kind of edgy, mainstreamish. The audience of, of the original Euphoria, they didn't know how to look at this. They were very conservative about this. And, and there is a government branch that is overseeing television um, broadcasters. And they were so furious about that. So not only did they, they, they forced us to take it out of the VOD every day before 10 a.m., and not only not not to air it before 10 a.m., not not to... Like, VOD is uh, video on demand in case anybody doesn't know. Yeah, right. Yeah, like it was like erased every day from the streamer until 10 a.m. <laughs> and it was, we were not allowed to have any promos before 10 a.m. And I was sitting in a government office where I was called to a government office and they were saying, listen, I mean... You are a good writer. You've done some beautiful things, but this time you screwed up. I mean, why aren't you writing a story about how beautiful and sensitive our youth and teens are? I mean, 
And trying to explain what art was to them was useless. So it was canceled. The head of drama over there at the network really wanted to continue for another season, but their the CEO and their bosses said no. And that was the blessing because that that what made me fight to find someone who would be open to give it new life, right? Yeah, totally a blessing in disguise. I agree. And there's if if we look back with a magnifying glass in our life, we could find so many of these, yeah. right? If we want, yeah. if, if we just did. But in real time, not in hindsight, it hurts. You must have mid feeling yeah. some human feelings there too, Ron. Right? Where like, well, you know, but I'm I'm kind of optimistic. Although I see, I mean, hope is the only thing we really have in this profession, right? We still. We keep on believing that yeah. it will happen, whatever. So I, I don't know, because it meant something for me. And it was I was passionate enough about creating it. Sam Levinson, our brilliant, brilliant director, creator, writer, brought so much from his own soul in a sense that it is, uh, he brought his life story into in, uh, into the characters. And for me, it works differently with writing. I usually write my alter ego and someone I'm not and someone I want right. to be or someone I right. missed on. And for me, it like was... Like running naked in the Bolivian, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, yeah never did, <laughs> you never did any of that. You said like that was... Yeah, eventually yeah. I did. I was running naked on the Bolivian <laughs> cocoa fields, by yeah. the way. You know what? No, the thing is, so yeah, when I was 21, you know, Israelis, when they're 21, they usually go a moment after the military service. They go, they fly to South America or, or um, Asia for a year. If they're spoiled kids or like the nerds one would go to, I don't know, Australia, right? But most of them would go to try drugs and orgies or whatever in South America and Asia. And now when I was 21, the only thing I was thinking about was worrying about my career. I mean, I wanted to start doing something. When you were 13, you were 30, right? So this yeah. goes with that theme. I missed, yeah, yeah, yeah. I missed the really. And then when I was, I think when I was 28, suddenly I realized I, I missed something. I didn't have this beautiful experience and I wanted to feel how it would feel and I took a plane with a friend to Bolivia, to the coca fields, to the death ro- road. And I said, okay, now I'm, I'm 28. And after I, w- I was already an executive with like 200 employees, but I said, no, I'm going to run naked on the coca fields and I'm going to do orgies and drugs and whatever, because I wasn't this kid prior to that. And it didn't feel as exciting as it can feel when I'm writing this. Uh, it's more passionate when it's like in, when it's my, in my imagination. So I took a plane to Rome. And I just locked myself in a, in a freezing air condition in, in a hotel in Rome. And I opened my laptop and started writing about running around naked in the coca fields in Bolivia and having this orgies and, and sex and drugs and everything. And it's more fun and meaningful when I'm imagining it. And it's always, the, for me, it's always about being able to be someone else. And writing is all about the ability to feel what people who are so different than you can feel definitely is you doing that though at 28 ron the crazy stuff yeah. is that what led to you writing euphoria i think yeah euphoria started with that on the one hand having some kind of yearning to a chat to teenage years that i never had and never experienced but also it was about trying to explore something about um the kind of toxic freedom that we have i wanted to write about urban um rotten life of a teenager who does 
I want to write about how 15 maybe is the new 30 because they're exposed to anything. They, they're coping with things that in the past, they're not mature enough to cope with, but they're, but they know already everything. They're experiencing everything. At 15, they're kind of living things that we used to live when we were 30. The mental health epidemic right now with that age group, by the way, maybe it's because they're having to be (laughs) that and they're not ready to be that or something, right? Maybe. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, like 40 is the new 25, right? Yeah. And if 15 is the new 25, then you're stuck at the same place for so many years and it's kind of gets you bored. And I wanted to write about an urban commune of kids who were exposed to a trauma together, Mm -hmm. to a teenager that was uh, killed, a real story, who was killed in a nightclub. And I wanted to find the souls that were around there that night and write about how they find themselves in a kind of an urban commune on a rooftop overlooking the hectic city with a jacuzzi full of beer on the rooftop and mm. you have no parents at all. And there's something about television, you know, in films, you might find films that with beautiful films with a teenager lead character who, who would still feel like an Oscar. It's not a teen drama. It's a meaningful film with a teenager character leading it. But on television, the moment you are approaching an executive on any network mm-hmm. with a story with teen characters, they will tag us as a team drama so then it needs to be didactic then you need mature um uh, responsible parents to guide you don't treat the teenagers as mature right yes and i i felt like okay we need to create a teen drama that where in a way that is not meant for kids or teenagers but Mm. gives you a glimpse into what they're coping one idea that we had was it shouldn't be it should be emotionally realistic. And this mm. is why a lot of kids would tell you, or teenagers or 20-year-olds would tell you, wow, this is so accurate. This is frightening how accurate this is. I feel like I'm, it's so relatable. I see myself in it. Yeah. But at the same time, they will all say, well, I mean, no one lives like that. It's emotional realism it, that makes it so uh, powerful, I think. To, to, to weave all that together, I feel like it, with, you don't need the parental figures anymore because in the modern society, 15 is now 30, right? So yeah. like, it's like there's no need for them. Yeah. That's really interesting, Ron. That's interesting. So, so what is the predominant difference then if you could articulate for us between like the Israeli version, right? Which you first created and like the um, American version. Like what's the, what's the primary difference? You know, in our world today, every two years is a new generation. Technology Mm -hmm. creates different teenagers and it even reflects their physiologically their brain like it's different generations so the fact that the original euphoria was in 2012 there are completely different things you want to explore now mm-hmm. and also that we're so blessed that sam levinson agreed to create his own version his own story and and be writing it directing it and, and creating this yeah. incredibly beautiful thing and i'm i had a, i had this experience when i'm creating a show a first version it can be in israel and europe and then someone takes the show and remakes it into another culture yeah and a lot of my friends when their show is being made in a different language they're obsessed with fighting for for a character for a right. word for everything when i watch my show being remade in korean i'm flying over and i sit there and watch and learn and i'm and i feel so fortunate that someone else is giving the characters right. his interpretation and i feel blessed because i love how television is doing that globally doing that overseas doing that so i love how a show i create 
is is remade in so many different cultures. Uh, no, that's beautiful. And and let me bring that home because we've touched on this before, Ron, about ego maybe preventing a lot of artists, creatives, like, no, it's got to be my way and my vision. You're too, too attached. Yeah. And you kind of block this yeah, beautiful, yeah. beautiful evolution to something, right? And so that's so, <laughs> so important, so important. Cinema is, is the dictatorship of a, of a director. And on television, usually what I love is that you're cooperating with friends and, and people who are completely different than you. You're sitting together in a room and trying mm-hmm. to create something together. And there are weeks where I feel I need to be completely alone. I find myself writing in bed with my laptop, total darkness, Hmm. freezing with the air condition and just riding for hours. On the other hand, there are weeks where I feel I need people around me and I'm too lonely about it. I mean, I'm writing a book. I'm so lonely for such a long time. Then I miss this adventure of television, this journey where you have, and being a showrunner, being a writer on television means that you are leading people. You have responsibility for careers and and people and sometimes 150 people. This is what's so beautiful about television uh, that you don't have on cinema, unless it's a show about 20-year-olds where you decide to bring a 20-year-old, 25, 30-year-old showrunner and have this this showrunner uh, guided by by a mentor who is an experienced showrunner. But usually 99% of the showrunners, they'll be 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds. Mm. It's not like in the past where you felt, no, I mean, 50-year-olds or 60-year-olds, they don't have anything to say about the world. I mean, it's a world of young voices. No, they you need to have some kind of... Uh, long life journey in order to last for five seasons. I'm learning this profession for 20 years now, and I still don't know half of it again. That, that's beautifully said. Yes. Yes. And, and and needing that other perspective, you know, also to balance it out a little bit, there's just things you're going to know at 50 and 60 that just some of it's impossible yeah. to know, right? At, at 20 or whatever. Let's get back into the uh, storyline here of uh, the rejection from Israel, then, you know, finding your way into the States. What is it like when this starts to pick up momentum and starts to become a hit show, just talk us through like those emotions. I want to know. First of all, there, you can't find one single moment where you can really be happy and not worried, right? Because when you get a phone call saying, we want to try and buy an option and develop it, it doesn't mean anything. You're going to be one out of 160 developments in this network where only one will get be made eventually then you get a phone call well we're gonna film this pilot and you say well i mean you're gonna be one out of 15 or one out of five and now you're even more afraid of losing it and then you are afraid that you're gonna collapse within the season you don't feel catharsis any in any point but one point the fact when you start realizing that person the artistic soul who is leading the way is doing such a brilliant work first of all the one thing i love more than anything else is sitting in front of the white blank page and start drawing ideas. Sometimes it would be an algorithm of an idea. Sometimes I will be drawing a story, drawing a picture or something and looking for the things that people I want to be and people I want to be with. And this is the journey of writing and then just thinking about it. And, and this is what I'm so excited about. The moment where a project is being, even like the stories that I'm writing, 100% myself, I'm really struggling at when, when they're out there. When I'm just, I'm embarrassed, I'm worried, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I was never happy when a novel or, or a TV series was premiered. Never. Mm. 
Hmm. or succeeded. Okay, wait a second. So this is something I say often, Ron. I say we need to focus on our craft over the scoreboard. Yeah. And you're kind of saying that, right? Yeah. A lot of us, when we choose uh, what is the story we're going to devote ourselves to as writers, mm-hmm. we choose for the wrong reasons. We think of a story and we say, well, this is going to work now, or this is going to be, well, people want to hear this story, or this is important or whatever. But you're, you're forgetting that you're going to spend five years of your life with this story or 10 years of li- your life with the story. And the one and only thing that should matter is falling in love with being extremely passionate about being this character. And then you you start building it. I always go back and remind myself, what was the reason? What is the naked truth with the story? Because there's so much noise and, and uh, disruption would take the story sometimes in the in wrong directions. Mm-hmm. And I always go back to what was the one single thing I fell in love with. You will be sometimes throwing away everything you've done and starting from blank page or blank word document and writing a whole new take on the on the same pile. If you don't really love what you're dreaming of or confident about the idea that will be made eventually, you're going to collapse on the way, right? But uh, this is also so relatable to every creative field. Or if you're building a business, you know, that you build yeah. build a business, you're an entrepreneur, oh that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. It's like always be iterating and yeah. you're just going to continue to get more and more to the essence of what it is you're trying to do. Yeah. But the iterating can be really uncomfortable. It's almost like a birthing process, isn't it? It's like you're constantly yeah. giving birth to another version, another version. Basically, what we are lacking usually what we are lacking. We don't have any any long thoughts anymore, right? Every moment I start thinking of something in our daily life, I'm interrupted by a text message after 20 seconds or someone steps into my office or another thought, something that I'm worried about and production issues or... So what I'm mostly trying to find is the opportunities to have a a thought, one thought that can last for six hours, 10 hours. Mm -hmm. And for that, what I do, I usually I will take a flight or drive to somewhere I've never been to where the scent is different. It smells different. And I'll just start walking. And usually places I feel kind of detachment, uh, rootlessness, right? A city, an amazing city I've never been to in China or Argentina. I'd start, I'll start walking, losing my way, but I'll be walking no, not knowing where I'm going. You have a thought where... You are exploring an idea. You're, I'm thinking about your character. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to take the character left or right. And it lasts for six hours. And then the other thing I'm doing is like trying things I've never tried before that might make me feel something I've never felt before. Because most of our work would be I'm waking up at 4.40 or 5 and start working very hardworking, daily, uh, exhausting way of typing and thinking and drawing. In order for the brilliant moments, tiny moments, the nuances that you're lacking, you need to fight to get out of the shelf. I, I can't think of any other profession I would be able to be that enthusiastic about. Storytelling, it gives you such solace, like where it's so much better for me to live in this alternative world rather than in my own life, although I have great life. As a sensitive person, yourself as well, Mm -hmm. we look at our world around us and there's so much evil that that comes for no reason and doesn't play a role. It's random and it's harmful, but it doesn't create... 
At least in drama, the solacism comes from the fact that every evil has a purpose and it changes the characters and it makes them better and it tries to stay within the boundaries and rules. And I can be the god of the story and make sure that I, I, that I, that I don't harm our character too much. You can bring justice, meaning, meaning more particularly to yeah. these ills versus in the real world, there's just ills that happen. That's such a good point, Ron. One of the things I've been able to do in my life is, man, I've encountered so much adversity and um, from, you know, chronic health problems, losing my dad at 12, addiction. I keep finding a way to alchemize these things, to, to, to really like turn them into gold. It is a lot harder to do that in real life than it is when you're writing, it's like so much easier, right? The reason behind Euphoria originally was to say it's okay to be not okay, right? And the thing is, so when I was a, a teenage boy yeah. who and I was struggling with things and I, I didn't know what to do with the fact that I'm gay, when I wasn't happy, I told myself successful people and and um and artistic people and brilliant people are never really happy they can be happy for moments but if they were so happy what would drive them to fight so hard to work so hard um and and then along the way i found myself happy but i'm still working like crazy what's driving you ron 4 40 in the morning is early you're waking up 4 40 yeah what's driving you well i, I live in boston you know and people wake up really early here they go to bed at eight I, i'm still the things that drive besides just loving this journeys and yeah. believing that our life our very short life should be we should be collectors of experiences and we should uh, explore as much as we can. And I'm still struggling to get to that point because still when I'm, when I'm approaching, even today, I'm approaching an executive, even an executive that, that knows that like they said no to euphoria back then they knew that they, but now they will still say no to ideas that I will. But, but, but again, you have, a, you, have a tra- you have a track record, right? You have a track record and you still get told no. It's but, so important to highlight that, though, because I think so many people are thinking when they go achieve X, Y, Z, that it's just going to be this smooth, whatever they want to do. I mean, you know, no. it's not like that. Maybe it's a good thing that it's not like that. It gives you the drive. I think the one thing I, I am capable of doing today, <laughs> which is the blessing is I am working with people I admired when I was beginning my journey. The fact that there's so many good people who are willing to be mentors, who are willing to be generous. The idea that I can work today with people that I love. I love how this industry, the television field, drama field, is becoming so uh, globalized and borderless. And Mm -hmm. suddenly I'm creating a show with Juan Campanella, who is a brilliant Oscar-winning director I always loved, and with Walter Salas, who did uh, Motorcycle Diaries as a director about the Che Guevara story, which I loved that film, but also Mm -hmm. he produced City of God that made me want to be a a writer. And and a lot of people that I, I mean, I'm I'm getting to meet people that were my heroes in in a sense. In a strange way, I don't know if it's maybe just random, but when I was meeting uh, authors I really admired as a kid, I was usually disappointed. Um, sometimes also when I was meeting why? actors, why were you just, I don't know. Why were you just, huh? maybe I was just imagining as a 
kid, you know, you are imagine you want to imagine something that is that is beyond human when you are reading mm, a novel. Yeah. But sometimes yeah. I don't know. There were unple- I had unfortunately I had the experience of meeting unpleasant or not generous people. And, <laughs> but it, but at the same time, when I'm meeting today, when I'm meeting all these uh, brilliant directors and writers who I always wanted to meet from all over the world, five continents, I, I'm just, every time I'm just amazed by how the people who are successful in being showrunners or film director with a long career of 20, 30 years, they're good people. So many people attain success, right, on paper, and um, it can so easily change a person because now their ego gets bigger. They, you know, the, it's like they were treated like shit by people yeah. on the way up, right? So now they think it's their duty to treat other people on the way up like yeah. shit. I swear that happens. Yeah. So it's like what separates somebody from doing this and taking the more altruistic approach? You know, I think, and it's not karma. It's just uh, realistically, I, I think, analytically, I say this as a journey where when I look, I've been an executive uh, for t- trying to develop careers for tons of talented people. And I think that those who maintain success and weren't just a very short-term talent who will be forgotten next year, those who were maintaining success for 10 years, for 20 years, almost always, I think always, the the ones who uh, were good people and remembered to be grateful for the audience and for others. Because a lot of people, and I, you know, as a TV executive, I was working um, on, on producing uh like primetime reality shows. And you have that in, in drama too, where an actor comes from nowhere and he's becoming a success within a day. And mm-hmm. he's so confused and he thinks he's God. If they're not careful, they will be forgotten within a few months. I think maintaining a career and an A-list actor or being mm-hmm. an A-list writer means that you need to be hardworking, sensitive, a uh, heartwarming person must not be confused about this. Like, and I think the audience it ha- has a very sharp eye on what souls are good. And also you're going to suffer a lot of crisis and, uh, along the way. And even the best actor would suffer, and not only an alcoholic type of a, 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 an episode, but also you're going to make wrong decisions. You're going to take the wrong projects. You're going to be get awful critics. If you don't have the support of people who really want you not to fail and will fight for you because you love them and you give them love back, etc., then you're going to collapse. And I think for me that when I'm when I meet these people who I can sense immediately that they're the good ones, yeah. I know they have the potential of being there for. 20, 30 years and not being the guy who would walk on the street and being frustrated about how people don't recognize him and be stuck in this depression for the next 30 years, knowing that now he needs to go to work and I don't know where. It's like a sacred thing, right, Ron? So, you know, the people that recognize and treat it as sacred, you want to look out for and other people want to look out for you think i think so i like that i want to go back here for a second to to touch on some of the themes that are covered in euphoria so also having struggled with addiction myself 
in, in the past. Addiction is, is a through line, right, with the Euphoria uh, series. There's a beautiful quote that I recently heard, which I want to share with you. It said, addiction is a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. So, yeah. yeah. So, so talk to me about, you know, I know now Sam Levinson openly went through addiction, right? When, when he was growing up and in the Hollywood lifestyle, have you yourself, when you were younger, have you had to go through anything addiction related or have you had close friends go through addiction stuff that personally touched your life? Yeah, so first of all, of course I had uh, good friends who are struggling. Knowing that I have this tendency to, um, I'm the one who would be addicted more than anyone mm-hmm. to anything. Whatever I, it will be, it will start with the coffee would make me addicted. Anything would make me addicted. It's either zero or a million. My life is always about trying to stop myself from trying things, those things that, that will make me uh, lose control. And then in the writing process, it's the only place where you can truly lose control. You can do whatever you want. You can yep. go to extreme, hardcore, anything. I, I was mostly suffering from depression as a 20 year old i think and for a year i was uh treated and you know uh, go, going back uh, so i am i was a very sensitive kid and I, I think it's part of it was uh the fact that i was um i was born a few weeks after my cousin uh who lived next door to us and she will she was eight was killed, uh, mm-hmm. hit by a car and killed. And then my uncle was killed in the war and, it, and my mother lost her father. And that, that was very important in her life. And I grew up mostly, I think, trying to make my mother not worried or make her happy. And I was mm-hmm. trying to be a good boy for her. But when I found myself uh, depressed and I needed a treatment, I think, and it paralyzed me, I think it was mostly because I was not, working on my emotional journeys and and romantic um, needs or anything without just focusing on on escaping into careers into being immature and therapy helped me a lot but at the same time the moment I met the love of my life that was the moment I became strong what I've learned over therapy was were the tools that allow me today to be both very sensitive and fragile even, but at the same time be able to be not only a writer, but also for time to time being an executive and and for 300, 400 people. I love this balance where you can feel how vulnerable you are and love it and be grateful for that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Just focusing on myself for a second, you know, it's the basics. Being able to stop and, and listen. You know how it is that you suddenly realize that for example you had dreams when you were a six-year-old that were recurring dreams yeah that are so clearly trying to shout something to you and they were there all, all, all along your childhood and you never even stopped thinking of what it, my soul is trying to tell me this therapy forces you to stop and ask questions and explore when we bought a house years ago, when we bought it for our first house, and it looked like a house where you can grow old, you can have a family. And it's so beautiful. I mean, I should should have been happy when we stepped into the house and said, "Wow, that's it, that's our life." But I looked over. I mean, I looked at the walls and and I looked at the staircase and I s- said to myself, "Well, I mean, th- they're going to be here when I am ninety, and they're going to be here, and that I can see the end. And this phone is going to ring with." 
some bad news and and the television is going to bring me some bad news and maybe I'm going to be here the moment the, that my the love of my life will be hurt somewhere mm-hmm. I'm going to lose him and and it was frightening so we moved to Boston for Oren's work. He, he's a surgeon. He's a microsurgeon, pediatric surgeon. And I, we started realizing that what we need more than anything else besides just being with each other is the feeling that life is full of opportunities for journeys and it's possible. And you can reinvent yourself every time again and again and start new life. As long as I have this partnership that I love the most and give me yeah. the stability. Yeah. So I'm kind of running away from this structure that will show me how the end looks and i'm saying to myself well if eventually i'm gonna die at the street that where i was born and when i was walking as a Mm four-year-old this is because this is going to be because i chose to do so it's not because i was just i was born there and and i chose to be to go back there maybe maybe i will i think this therapy made me understand that the world is huge and small at the same time you can just hug it i like that so that's beautiful getting back to this addiction piece though euphoria highlights it well and there is an epidemic of that age group during the height of the pandemic the cdc reported that one in four age 16 to 24 thought about suicide. That's heavy. There was an organization called DARE. There was this letter they wrote like, oh, euphoria is like glamorizing uh, drug use. I'm like, I feel like it's just almost reporting on what's happening. It's not glamorizing it to me. The ridiculous thing is that the fact that the one thing that teenage kid who is alone needs to see is that he's not the only one coping with the problem. That's the beginning of, of treatment. And is that someone like him can be loved. You know, it's not only about awakening parents to the, or awakening ourselves to how our society can uh, come over pandemic. So Oren is, as I told you, is a microsurgeon, a plastic surgeon at, at Boston Children's Hospital. And he, usually he is doing like kids who lost their ear or the dog mm-hmm. ate their no, he also started directing the Center for Gender Care at Boston Children's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. Yeah. And that, that is the first in the nation who treats the idea of gender care within a children's hospital, which is yeah. something that people who are ignorant would feel as provocative. But when you look at the numbers and see how 50% of these souls are struggling with it before the age of eight and 80% struggling before the age of 15, and these people are suffering more than anyone else from suicide attempts, from being hospitalized in, in mental institutions. But if for years within their felt identity, the true identity, and they are being treated and they're doing the transition, they're becoming, I'm not the one to say happy, but they're building families. They have yeah. great work. Yeah. They're becoming yeah. assets to society as, mm-hmm. as functional human beings. And society is just when rejecting them out of this ignorance is, is creating this endless uh, suffer. It's also about the idea that so many young people are struggling with suicidal thoughts and everything. It's something that you ask yourself, how do I treat it? How do I bring it to awareness? And one of the things you can do is by storytelling. Yeah. Storytelling from all sorts within a teen drama that is more didactic and is giving them guidance. Yeah, that's well said. And as you were sharing, you brought up this idea, truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed then it is violently opposed, 
And then it is accepted as self-evident. So oh, I feel like, beautiful. yeah, when you were sharing that, man, I was like, yes. <laughs> so, you know, it takes bravery to be in that first or second group. You know, it really does. That's, that's brave work that your partners and the messages that you're putting out there are so needed. Thanks. So thank you. So I heard you talk about in another interview, getting into partnership or bed with the wrong production company is not yeah. good. And I think that a lot of artists maybe will get with the wrong manager or the wrong record label or the, you know, the wrong partners in general. So what advice do you have? What have you learned from a wisdom standpoint about this? It's a major issue. Basically, all of us would go around LA with a great idea and 10 people or production companies would say no to it. And then the 11th would say, yeah, I love it. And they would want to buy an option. Usually it's going to be a cheap option, but even if they put a lot of money, they might not be the right DNA for that story. With Euphoria, we we like after before even before the networks, after I think a few, I don't remember how many uh, producers said no to it. There was one studio, a big studio that is doing like incredibly expensive films, but from other genres, more mm-hmm. more of uh, sci-fi and stuff. They said they love it and they want to develop it. They want to get into television. When they came with the idea to networks like HBO, the networks said, well, I mean, thought to themselves, well, we this is not a producer who can work with an artist and help guide an artist to the right DNA of this show. So we don't trust this studio. And only when we got back the options, and it took, I think, five years, we got back the options, we could find the right home for it. We were lucky because the management at HBO was replaced and the president and the, well, everyone were replaced. And Casey Bloss jumped two steps in from being head of comedy to being head of drama than to be president of HBO. Mm-hmm. And he remembered the pitch. But I think he felt like, first of all, he needs a producer Mm-hmm. who would be the right one for this DNA. A24, who are producing it, they've done uh, Lady Bird and they've done the Oscar-winning um, film uh, Moonlight. This is a type of a DNA, a type of creators that, that, that are right for this type of a story. It's not even like a good producer, bad producer. It's a producer mm-hmm. that would be right for this tone. But a lot of us, even today, I think about myself, if 10 people would say no to me, I would most likely be convinced to go with the 11th. But are you getting into married to, to the wrong person, your relationship with the people, they're going to be the, the success or the failure or, or, and everything. Like, so I don't think there is a right or wrong way to deal with it, but you must be aware of it. You must be brave to say no. Everyone will tell you your career is defined by your ability to say no to opportunities more than it is defined by our ability to say yes to opportunity. Yeah, completely. Just heard somebody in an interview say, um, yes is expensive. I thought that was such a good way to put it. On that note, Drake got involved, right? In yeah. Euphoria. And, yeah, and Drake is an executive producer. Can you, and, uh, yeah, can you tell me, Prince. please, how did that come about? HBO and A24. I mean, you know, it's so Drake has a production company. And the guy is not only hardworking, he is brilliant, of course. He's showing up to things, yeah. right? On and he was doing television before he was doing anything else, right? I mean, he's kind of, and he's just brilliant. When 
Hunter Schaefer was was involved in in writing the special episode in the pandemic, and it, you you realize how, what these incredible talents are capable of bringing to the table. That's a blessing, right? Completely. These are the cast and everyone. These are brilliant souls. And what we did, what we started even in the original version, is with on the one hand trying to respect the fact that being an actor is is something. It's not just a talent. It's something you've been learning for years, and you yeah. are getting most professional about ever but at the same time trying to bring some voices who were non-actors that you were able to find unique voices that you were able to find outside we did that a lot in the original euphoria and then sam did it brilliantly with the casting director to bring the fesco character and that guy's my favorite he's my favorite character by the way in in euphoria so he came off the street is that true he was uh working uh, i think he was working as a waitress at uh chicken and Waffle in New Jersey. Hunter, she was on her way to study art in Europe. She's a brilliant artist and fashion design, designer and, and, and an activist and so many things. I think even the audience, when the audience think of how bold you need to be when making decisions as, as a showrunner, they think of, oh, the bold plot lines. They never think of the things, the risks you're taking when you're thinking out of the box and taking these powerful decisions that are creating something. I'll tell you what, what the thing is. Like, basically, this industry works in a way where you're creating 500 shows a year in LA. All these shows are being made based on something that is called the mandates. Like every network is trying to create every season a list of what they're looking for, what's yeah. going to work. And these lists that are sometimes today even being made by, uh, with the help of MBA graduates, like people are not artists at all, but trying to analyze what's working right now. They're building a formula of what's going to work. And then 500 shows are going to look the same in in, in a sense. And you and I are going to step in with a unique voice and they will say, well, but we're not, this is not what we're looking for this year. (laughs) Eventually that the shows that are going to be breaking the China and being the number one hit will always be those that 20 networks said no to with Stranger Things. Like they came with Stranger Things to 20 networks. Everyone said no to it. And everyone told them, well, we can't, you can't do a show with the point of view of the kids. You need to have an FBI guy leading the show as a point of view. It will never work. But eventually when it was made and because it is so unique in the field of like 500 shows, only then it was because it Netflix ever had until that moment it was the most watched show ever when you have a, a, a show that comes with a unique voice and has the potential to be breaking the China and doing something brilliantly new mm-hmm. you should expect to be rejected by 20 networks and fight hard for our fear is from spending five years of your life on a story and being produced and then disappearing and being meaningless forgotten yeah, yeah, yeah. and forgotten yeah. and being yeah. and, and, and have no impact on, on anyone and being one out of 500 shows that are being made for nothing right it's again speaking to the resistance that these types of things get the 30,000 foot view that we're speaking from I think is easier than when you're actually in the battlefield yeah. like pushing yeah. and going through the resistance it's hard man but I love what you're saying because you've said it a few times now ron pulling back and recognizing that a lot of your favorite pieces of art 
have all gone through that. I'd like to bring it home with this idea of Bashir. Talk to me about your thoughts, your personal thoughts on that. Uh, maybe you the, should solve just this leave, idea leave of Bashir. Yeah, oh, to me, okay. So to me, Bashir is like I just it's fun. Okay, so <laughs> I'm all about like authenticity, right on the show. So here we go. So yesterday it's a holiday weekend here in Santa Monica, and I'm going to the beach. I'm meeting a friend for tennis. There's no parking because it's a holiday weekend. It's crazy, and this woman's like take my spot. She just sees me looking. That was very nice. Okay. So I take her spot after I park in her spot and get out of the car. This guy comes up to me. I've never met before. And he said, connection is magic. I I watch your stuff all the time. So I'm like, Whoa. And it would have never happened. You know, had I just told you she had to flag me down and say, Hey, I think that's a little wink from the universe, a little yeah. whatever you want to call it, it, things like this. I love that. You know, so I, I, I always remember how all the things that I, I really wanted and didn't get, sometimes it would be jobs, positions. I wanted to be running a network that I was dreaming to run. When I got or, or shows that I didn't get a green light for, I, I always look back and see how it was a blessing eventually. And I, it led me to better things. And I hope it also makes me a, a better person. One thing that really helps me is you need to fall in love with the human race again every time. The worst disease right now in some countries is lack of empathy. I think we have less empathy than we ever had in the past. The ability to see the suffering of someone else and feel it on yourself and, and hear in news that kids are dying somewhere and not really being able to feel a story even. What helps me awaken every time is falling in love with the human race again. And you, it will, for some people, it will happen from going to a new place where I'm just fast again, walking, walking in Japan yeah. somewhere or, love or in Africa so somewhere and look yeah. around me and see how this universe is, is, is just a huge heart bits of people who are looking to connect. For for us, the fact, me and my partners, the fact that we're doing uh, a lot of shows now that are globalized and international, the mm-hmm. fact that I am able to write a show and then bring filmmakers from 10 different countries speaking 10 That's different amazing. languages, but the ability to connect, to create a show that, that is being created in Argentina, the US and the Philippines with hmm. Artists from so many, or or for us as an Israeli Jewish guy, creating shows with Muslims and Arab friends across the border or filming in Morocco. These are things that make this whole journey more meaningful to me. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. And connection is magic. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're bringing all these. It's like the minute we're born, everything is stratified. Socioeconomic, race, gender, everything is stratified. Really, like we're more alike than we are not alike. That's that's just the facts. And the media is very smart. They're manipulating. I think they are. They're manipulating it because if you feel separated, one, I feel like it's easier to have power and control over somebody that feels separated and isolated. Then you'll look to other things, the wrong things. It's getting us away more and more from like our true essence, which is we're more alike. So thank you for speaking to that, Ron. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. The the last thing I want to say too, that I observed from Euphoria, I really, I had a theory and I just want to see how this lands with you. Are you ready? When I watched Euphoria, 
there was something I noticed that was kind of like peculiar. There was a lot of banging on doors. <laughs> like, do you know that? Uh, they're banging on doors. And I'm almost like, is this a some type of metaphor for like, everybody's pointing to everybody else like fuck you fuck you fuck you but nobody's like looking within themselves right like that's nice i, I love this i love this well i never thought of that it's beautiful okay <laughs> thank yeah. you i'm glad that landed for you <laughs> i'll take the validation yeah thank you so much for joining us today ron i really appreciate it. i think a lot of a lot of great things were shared in this interview where can people keep up with you online do you have an online presence or any sort of social media that you want to put out there not really, or you know I, i'm not really using my instagram account which i have when i write stuff and when, when i'm filming i just disappear from the world and i live in this alternative universe but other times uh, yeah i'm on LinkedIn. i'm and i'm i'm trying to when i'm not writing i'm trying to reply to anyone who writes to me on linkedin uh, that's awesome uh, okay I'm, write I'm them on trying. linkedin i mean yeah i'm trying i think it's beautiful that you want to pay it forward like i love doing the same and then euphoria season 3 is you said october production starts okay yeah production starts and, and i'm trying when i do have the time i'm trying to mostly when i'm trying to meet people or audience who will be meeting students i i think that that's like meeting students who are just at the beginning of their careers and, and going to campuses. And this is something I'm trying to do as much as I can. Um, speaking to them, it's like, it's so important that when people are trying to be focused about how do they, how are they going to build a vision for themselves and a voice for themselves. That's beautiful. Yeah. Your karmic bank account, Ron, is like overflowing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's overflowing. I can say that about you. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate for you. Sure. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bless. Thank you, everybody, so for joining you. us Thanks. on this episode. And uh, we hope you got a lot out of it. We'll see you around. Thank you. Thank you so much again for tuning in to today's episode. It really means the world to me. If you heard anything relatable that created new awareness for you, please visit our podcast on iTunes and leave a rating or review. This helps build our audience. Please comment, like, and share this episode out with your family, friends, coworkers, or anyone who you feel would benefit from the messages shared in today's episode. I'm really, really grateful for your help in spreading these messages of hope and wisdom. The world is in such great need right now and your support helps carry the message onward to others who need it. Also, please consider becoming a monthly financial contributor to the podcast. You can do so by visiting connectionismagic.com and clicking on the Patreon link. Patreon is a third-party platform which helps support creators in exchange for exclusive content and offers. You'll be able to get discounted merchandise like comfy hoodies, t-shirts, as well as retreat discounts where we'll have special guest speakers and group activities to connect you with like-minded community members. Again, thank you so much for tuning in, and until next time, please stay connected.